Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, DC area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away both from educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping that you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S. with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who is nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one-hour sessions and follow-up six-months progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast, sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides ProScript Perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the iconic journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, Co-Enterprise's mission is to provide, motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. My guest for today's show is Todd Rich, who is the co-founder of Declaration Partners, which is a registered investment advisor, seated by the family office of David Rubenstein, the co-founder of Carlisle. There are two divisions of Declaration Partners. One is for private equity investing in non-real estate companies, tech and other, other healthcare companies. And real estate. And Todd leads the real estate division based on his extensive experience at two other private companies. Prior to Declaration Partners, he was a partner at JBG Companies here in Washington for two to three years, and then left them as they went public. And then he was at Tishman Spire prior to that for many years in four cities, culminating here in Washington in 2010 to 13, leading the office here. Um, he met David Rubenstein at the Economic Club of Washington, 
And over time, they developed a relationship and decided to form Declaration Partners around 2017. Last year, in 2022, they raised $240 million from family office investors and high net worth individuals. So the, the philosophy of the firm is to look at things in a long-term basis and flexibly. And these are the four tenants that he has. Deploy capital selectively, invest flexibly, own actively, and own together as partners with other family offices and high net worth individuals. So it's a different approach than the traditional institutional investment approach. One aspect that Todd has, is, and he's said it several times, is he's looking for integrity both with his partners and with his employees. He's looking for talent, and he's looking for both investment and asset management experience in investing. So instead of Many, you know, remote investors typically just have investment experience and understand the numbers, may not have the on the ground management experience with the real estate. He wants that. And he believes that that's important and a distinguishing factor for their investment strategies. So without further ado, please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Todd Rich. So Todd Rich, welcome to Icons of DCRA Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. So could you describe your role at Declarations Part- Declaration Partners and your focus day-to-day, as well as describing what Declaration Partners is and your relationship with David Rubenstein? Sure. Again, thanks for having me, John. Really, you know, I've been a fan of your podcasts for a long time, and I know you spend a lot of time trying to help mentor young people, professionals in our industry. And I think you don't get enough credit for it, and I'm really excited to be part of this. So to answer your question, I'm the co-founder and the head of real estate. Declaration Partners. Declaration Partners is a relatively new firm. We founded it approximately five years ago. And the firm is really meant that we are structured as a registered investment advisor. And we're intending to really try and invest with a family office mindset to think and invest like families have traditionally done so, but to combine that with the benefits of sophisticated private equity set and techniques. So if we could, if we if we could try and invest with the, the flexibility, the patience, the mindset of family offices, but with the skill and technical abilities that traditional private equity firms have, and together to combine those in order to be, if if we could, a new generation investment firm. Declaration Partners was founded really to invest first the capital of David Rubenstein, as you noted. David Rubenstein is the co-founder of Carlisle and is a noted philanthropist and financier, really in some ways a legend in the private equity industry. He has chosen to create a family office called Declaration Capital, to invest his own family capital in the things that he knows best, principally direct private investments, both of companies, that's called private equity, and in properties, that's what we call real estate private equity. And he is our anchor investor. And so Declaration Partners is the registered investment advisor. Declaration Capital is David's family office. And David's family office happens to be our largest and, and in many ways, most important strategic investor. And what's your specific role? So I run the real estate efforts for Declaration. So Declaration really has three basic investment areas, two in private equity and one in real estate. So in private equity, we invest in what we call platform investments. So that's, I think, family businesses, ideally cash cows that one can compound for very long periods. We do growth equity. And what we call, we focus on what we call the inflection stage of growth equity. So that's, I think, private companies that have succeeded to the point where they've figured out the product market fit. They have some visibility into unit economics, but they have not yet hit sustainable at scale profitability. And we hope to catch them in that run up, that inflection. And then we do real estate investing. 
And so I run a team that has eight professionals in the real estate investing space, and that is what we focus on. Okay. So in doing my research, I noticed, and I'm going into personal matters now, I noticed your mother passed away last month, and I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, thank you. That was that's My rough. condolence to you. Thank you. Her obituary provided some background. However, I'd like to take your take on her, your dad as well. Tell us about your origins, youth, and parental influences, Dad. Sure. Well, look, as you pointed out, my mom did just pass away, and that's that's been rough on, on me, on my sister, and, and, our, and our children. You know, obviously, it is, in some ways, it is the natural state of being. It is a, a rite of passage for, for a, a child as, as he or she becomes an adult to lose a parent. It doesn't make it any easier. And I'd say in my particular case, and hopefully many other people feel the same way, I really have always felt very, very loved by both of my parents. I was very, very fortunate to grow up in a home where love was 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 a given it wasn't questioned and i would say that that our type of love or my parents type of love was perhaps not atypical for for people of my generation growing up like i did in you know suburban new jersey which is to say that it was love that also came with a little bit of of of, of push from behind a little bit of there was certainly an envelopment of support but there was also you know some desire to advance to live up to what I, I, I affectionately call the immigrant mentality in the United States for people who to try and who have realized that it is a great privilege to be born into the United States uh, and we are fortunate to have a stable generally uh, government and generally growing economy with fantastic education systems and it is therefore incumbent on all of us to take advantage of those resources and put in effort to learn and to grow and to become better in order to try and achieve a little bit more than our parents had achieved, but also to leave the world ideally in a better place than we found it. And, and I think that those values are, are really instilled in me by both my mom and my dad. And I'm very grateful for that. It's also, a, it, it's clearly a loss of my mom. I'm very lucky that my dad is still alive and I'm, I consider him my best friend and I'm very fortunate to have that relationship. Talk about his background. So my dad is the son of an immigrant who came from Poland. We are a Jewish family. So he came from Poland at a time when it was not quite popular to be Jewish in Poland. And he was uh, he left his family at age 13, just a little bit after his bar mitzvah, left alone, leaving, we believe, eight or nine brothers and sisters back in Poland, all of whom sadly perished. He made it to the United States and started, like many of his era, a textile company um, in, uh, in, in New York, ultimately, and in New Jersey. And he raised two children, my dad and my uncle. My dad ended up growing up in New Jersey, working a little bit in the business, but trying hard to sort of educate himself beyond just age 13. Ended up going to college and becoming an accountant after the army and, and, and actually started his own firm. It was not a textile business. It was an accounting firm. And my dad ended up growing that before, before ultimately selling and he's now retired. And so I had felt from an early age the importance of education and of hard work and I candidly bit the entrepreneurial bug. The desire to start my own company, I think, came from the legacy of my grandfather having started his own firm, my father having started his own firm, and I felt a little bit of desire to do the same thing. That's great. How did your mom influence you? My mom was a, a, a constant educator, but it was really because she liked learning herself. So every morning when, when I would wake up, I would see my mom sitting at the kitchen table with a cup of coffee and usually several newspapers, the New York Times being her favorite newspaper. And at night, it would be the same thing. And, and so I am perhaps a dinosaur in that I, every morning, also read at least two newspapers, 
the, the physical kind, the, with the crinkly blank, black ink, not, not, not on the internet. On Saturdays, I actually sometimes get four or five newspapers. So I'm single-handedly trying to keep that industry alive. But, but it's really because of the influence of my mom, who, who really encouraged reading and staying engaged with current events. So she was always curious, always trying to find out things. Always curious and, and trying to not just to find things out, but then to, to teach us. She would take us to every museum on the planet. You know, I, 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 I joke, but it, it's true. My, I, my mom even found when we would go on a family vacation to the Bahamas, for example, we found the Bahamian History Museum, Nassau, <laughs> which is probably not frequented by many other beach tourists. That's funny. So just constant curiosity then. So growing up in New York, you were obviously in the city a lot to, in that area, you know, going to shows and that kind of thing. Your mom apparently was interested in theater as well. Exactly. I grew up in New Jersey, so yeah. so you know, still still a Springsteen fan, but I'm but I'm of the part of New Jersey where I'm also a Yankees fan, and so yes, was was in the city very very frequently. My dad happens to live in, in New York City now, and I'm I'm still there all the time. That's great. That's great. So you went to East Brunswick High School, public public school, correct, and then and then on to Princeton University. So why Princeton? I got really lucky. I mean, I, I think Princeton is such a fantastic institution. And I think almost anyone who has an opportunity to go there, you know, would, would be foolish not to. So I got, I was lucky enough to get in. And so I took advantage and I loved it. I had just a, a, a really wonderful experience. I learned a tremendous amount, met some great people, some of my closest friends. I feel very, very fortunate. It's, it's a shame that these, org- these institutions haven't grown a little bit bigger because, uh, you know, it is obviously quite hard to get in. And it's quite hard to give that level of educational experience to more people, I wish they could because I, I really benefited tremendously. So uh, you were in what? What did you focus on when you were there? What What was your major? Now, believe it or not, I studied economics with a dual major, or sorry, a dual minor in finance and Latin American studies. So I actually first job after college was to work on Wall Street. I did Latin American private equity. So I, I started off on the buy side, but in Latin American companies and then moved to Argentina. I had a, a I was awarded a, a scholarship called the Fulbright Scholarship, mm-hmm. which allowed me to go down to Argentina to continue to study the private equity markets. So that was my intent. I'll be honest that I lived there in the year 2001 when Argentina, it was one of the multiple times that Argentina had defaulted under their on their debt. They had, I believe it was a 14 finance ministers in the year that I lived mm. there. They ended up having five national presidents in a two-week period. Oh my goodness. Uh, we, obviously in America, we, we go 30 years before five presidents. And so it was a, quite a different experience. There was not a ton of private equity or finance to study while there, but it gave me a great rooting in uh, I guess how the theory of financial collapse comes into reality and a tremendous respect, even more than I originally had, about how wonderfully fortunate we are to live in America and to have a, generally speaking, stable government and stable and growing economy. We're very, very fortunate. And we, you know, I, I, I will never take it for granted. What intrigued you about Latin America? I mean, why there? What, why not European culture? What was it about Latin American culture that interested you? You know, I'm not sure. Maybe I thought I could dance. So I, I <laughs> never learned. You know, I think in the United States, we, you know, there, there are now 40 million people who speak Spanish as a first language. And, uh, you know, that's actually more than there are people in Argentina. And so I've always been intrigued by learning another language. I, I, do know some other languages. And so Argentina was a way for me to you know, learn Spanish. At, at the time, remember, I applied for this in, in the late 1990s. And at the time, Argentina was believed to be undergoing an economic renaissance as well, where they were believed to have finally gotten their inflation under control. 
and that they were finally about to grow and that there was some new innovation in the world of private equity and investing. And so I, I was hopeful to be on the early side of that emerging trend. I think after having lived there and experienced the debt default, I, I, I realized I, I really wanted to come back to the United States. Um, candidly, I, you know, separate from the Latin America piece, I also had come to the conclusion, which is a bit controversial, that in my view, at least, private equity investing at a Wall Street bank was fundamentally no different from financial engineering and hoping that the management teams could create value. And I really wanted to learn whatever it is that the, these management teams can do, that we would be willing to entrust them with so much capital. And I thought that the best way to learn that was to try and learn how to manage investments. And at the time, I, and I still believe this, I thought that real estate was really the way to do that, that investing in real estate requires the same skills of identifying potential opportunities, underwriting them, structuring them properly, thinking about financing. But then once you own a piece of land or a building, you got to run it. You got to lease it. You got to design it properly. You got to manage expenses efficiently. And those are all things that in Wall Street world, the management team did. And I wanted to learn that. And so that, that was my focus. So where'd you catch the real estate bug then? Well, I, I, I really, growing up in the New York area, you see, you see plenty of successful real estate firms, particularly family-owned ones. And so i really trying to learn. I, I joined real estate with this insight that I believe that real estate investors had the ability to learn how to operate things. And so that was what I was willing to try. Candidly, when I got into it, I felt like I was young enough that if I didn't like it or if it proved to be incorrect, no problem, I'd go to business school. I ended up joining Tishman Spire, which is a, a fantastic firm. Uh, they, you know, they own Rockefeller Center and right. the MetLife Building, among other places. And I joined in New York in what they had a rotation program, which was meant to teach me how to... This was right after coming back from Argentina? Right after Argentina, that's right. Mm -hmm. Argentina and then Brazil, but yes, you know, I came back. And, and I just, I loved it. I, I couldn't get enough of it. I, I, I can, and I continue to feel that way. I love, I love real estate investing and, and you know, being involved mm -hmm. in, in the process. So how did you, I mean, Tishman Spires, it's interesting they would hire you right out of that experience. Normally they would hire typically, maybe I'm wrong, from, from Wall Street, from the investment banking, you know, analyst, analyst pool. So they actually have a separate pro program for direct, for students directly right out of school? Well, remember, I did I did work on Wall Street for a little bit, and then oh, I went to, okay. to Argentina and Brazil with the Fulbright Scholarship. So Tishman Spire is, I think, pretty innovative, and they had a program that has grown over the years. At the time, it was just called The Rotation, meaning one is expected to rotate through different sure. divisions of the firm, similar to you know GE, I guess, back in the day. It has now evolved, and, and really, there's a lot more thought behind it, and it's called the Leadership Development Program. And I was... One of the guinea pigs, one of the earlier you know, students or entrants into that program. But I think it was Tishman Spire's intent to try and grow their junior staff into being talented investment professionals. And I was just lucky enough to be there at a time that they were thinking about developing this program and, and candidly growing. Mm -hmm. So what did you learn there? I mean, everything about real estate, basically? Or did you already <laughs> have a basis when you were in the investment banking world about, about value and well, there's still plenty more to learn, so this is certainly not everything. On Wall Street, you, Wall Street is a great place to learn training on financial underwriting, on Excel models, and, and thinking about value and relative value. And so I had some background there. I didn't know anything about real estate. So we, when I joined Tishman Spire, I rotated through divisions like construction and development, dispositions, leasing, capital raising, more leasing. There's a lot of leasing to do in real estate and using fund management, portfolio management. I spent the first decade of my career focused almost exclusively 
on asset management, creating value within assets that were already owned. Obviously, since then, I've, I've spent a lot more time on and also making new investments. But I think that that training has been really, really helpful, really grounding. So you were there and then you came to Washington. I don't remember how long ago, but when did 2010. So 2010, I was in, so, yeah. okay. And so you were in New York and then Chicago. And I was in New York. I spent actually a little bit of time in DC in construction and then back to New York and London for three and a half years of a pan-European role in Chicago for four years and then back here. So I've been all over the place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So of those four, of those five markets, which was your favorite? Just out of curiosity. Oh, they're, they're all different depending on one's life stage. I mean, I think uh, to be clear, I, I live in the DC area now. It's a wonderful place to raise a family. And so I, I, I love it for now. I think, you know, it's, it's pretty romantic as a, you know, I was newly married, but not yet, no kids at the time that I lived in London. And I was fortunate enough to make it to 27 of the 27 EU countries at the time. So that was a really unique experience, but, but DC is, DC is home. So in 2013, you left Tishman Spire to join JVG companies. What drove that decision? Tishman is wonderful. It's a family-owned firm, and I'm not related. I wanted to own something. And the JVG at the time was a private partnership that was owned by the partners. And I got to know, you know many of those partners you know, over, over the course of you know, living and working in the D.C. real estate space. And when they offered me an opportunity to join as an owner, as a partner, I was, you know, I, I, I was very fortunate, and I, I jumped at the opportunity in part because of just how great the people were. And I know, John, you know most of the people, so, so it probably doesn't need much of an introduction, but they, you know, the, they have among the highest integrity in the business, nice people, real mentors. Uh, I'll specifically call out you know, Matt Kelly, the CEO, but also Rob Stewart and Mike Glosserman, who are both former managing partners, both on the board of the public company now, and both very, very, very close personal mentors of mine. They're actually still involved in Declaration now as part of our real estate advisory board, and I couldn't be happier. That's great. So how was that transition from Tishman Spire to JBG? What was the, was there a different philosophy or thought process at each company? I mean, what, what are, what do you, how do you contrast it to? Just out of curiosity. Well, at, you know, at the time, Tishman Spire was principally an office investment firm. JBG had much more of a mix. And then at the time, but still, you know, Tishman Spire was a global firm and JBG was focused specifically in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. And so some of those stereotypes are still true. In other words, JBG is still focused just here in Washington, D.C., although we had spent some time exploring other markets while I was there. And then Tishman Spire is still principally an office firm, although they've, they've changed as well. They they've now have a bunch more in the multifamily space. So I'd say for me, it was just continuing to learn and grow in my career one of the biggest changes for me was to realize the world outside of office, right? And, and JBG had a very big focus on mixed use, mixed use development, but also mixed use. And I think was always very thoughtful about risk adjusted investing. And that was something that aligned with me. I think, you know, so that, that was really one of the things that I, that I learned. Mm-hmm. So as you know, I've interviewed Matt Kelly and one of the energy, mm-hmm. you know, they, they took the same culture that they had when you joined and kind of moved it now into the public company type of philosophy, although there's been a lot of turnover since because some people didn't want to be part of a public company. They'd rather be part of a private equity firm. You're now an RIA, but somewhat of a private equity thought process here. Talk about, you know, the, the private equity space a little bit. You know, what, what is unique about it relative to the public REIT space? 
why is that you know a more viable career choice for some people as opposed to going in the REIT space? Talk about that a little bit if you can. Sure. Well, I I don't want to make the statement that that one is good and the other bad. That, no. that just isn't true. It's um, different. But they are they are different, and I think that. Anytime a firm transitions from one to the other, it should not be a surprise that there's a little bit of turnover, right? If, if, if sure. a firm like JBG was really rooted in private equity and private partnership origins with a really entrepreneurial culture and then switches to a different corporate structure with a different funding structure and a different investment philosophy, it should not be a surprise that the people who joined in one construct would find it less interesting, at least some of those people, in a different construct. It would also make sense that people who join the public company might find that that public company is actually a better place for them to work than the prior private would have been. And so, so I, I say that not with any value judgment of one being better than the, than, than the other. I would say for me personally, what I was looking for was something in the private space. And, and in fact, what I wanted to do was something a little bit different than even the prior JBG, which is that I believe that if you look over the long term, some of the best investors in real estate had historically been families. And when I studied what made them good investors, they tended to have a couple of common elements. And I wanted to match those elements. So in my view, there are really four things that family office investors tend to do. One, deploy selectively, invest flexibly, own actively. They do it together as partners. So let's unpack each of those. What does it mean to deploy selectively? Well, some of the larger institutional funds, and and you hear it on their earnings calls, they have become focused on fee-related earnings. They've become institutional asset gatherers and asset managers. And that is not bad. And for institutional investors, there is some logic to having a regular and consistent deployment of capital to match whatever liabilities they have. But family investors have historically not invested because they had strategic asset allocation models. They have historically invested periodically when they had conviction. And I think that's really important. And it's a distinction that we'd like to, to try and embody that it is better to invest periodically with conviction than frequently because of some desire to uh, you know, m- you know, meet the market or always constantly deploy capital. And so I think that's, that's something that we're trying to hold true. Separately, or secondly, they would invest flexibly. So many institutional consultants often like to bucket different fund managers or even you know public companies into specific strategies, and they really like to have very clear strategy and to then invest in only that. If they pick somebody who is a New York City office manager, for example, they do not want that person to then also switch to multifamily or you know to switch to a different geography. It is sometimes not smart to stay in that lane. It is sometimes makes more sense to be flexible, not just about where one invests, but also how one structures an investment. And we thought it was important, and family offices have tended to have this view, that it is important to maintain flexibility and that flexibility and being nimble is, is better for long-term investment outcomes than is rigidity around process or structure. And we wanted to try and maintain that flexibility. Last, own actively. So once one buys stock, or a property, it isn't important just to put it away and, and, and you know forget about it. It's actually the opposite. It's important to, to really work the asset. It's important to try and add value where, where that's possible. And one of the ways of adding value is to obviously you know change leasing or do construction or redevelopment. And those, those things are obviously true. But one of the other ways to add value 
is to think about your own tax structure and to consider compounding. Uh, you, know, uh, you know, Charlie Munger has a has a great quote, which is which is that the the first rule of compounding is to not interrupt it unnecessarily. Right. And I think that's uh, it's a fantastic lesson, and it is one that many of us in the private equity space tend not to listen to. And it becomes even more important for family investors who, unlike certain institutions, have frictional costs, taxes and whatnot that, that, that really impact long-term returns. And so we wanted the ability to actively own, which includes not just being active, but also owning. And so that was an important piece. Now, the last, the, the final thing I'd say is that we like to do it together as partners. Our goal is not to be an island. Our goal is to have partnerships with other families. First, on the investor side, we thought that was unique because family investors have certain philosophical advantages in terms of this long-term ability, the ability to think flexible, to be patient, to think about tax alignment. But often they have the ability to also help one another, that certain wealthy or prominent families have the ability to call CEOs or boards of directors in order to try and generate a new customer call or to find an acquisition opportunity. They're sometimes also deemed as friendlier or different from some of the, you know, maybe vulture funds out there to use a, a, a stereotypical negative view of the world. And so we think there are real advantages to working in partnership. And that partnership extends not just to our investor community, but also to the operator community. So we have forged some strategic long-term relationships, sometimes on the GP side, sometimes in a you know, programmatic fashion, where we will work together with, with talented, high-integrity real estate operating partners, real estate developers, in order to try and generate value, not just in any one investment, but over the course of a, of a career or lifetime of investing. So overall, what I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, is that your investment horizon is different than the typical private equity firms are. The, from a family office perspective. So you think long, not necessarily asset-wise, but relationship-wise, it sounds like. Is that? that that's the hope. And the, the hope, obviously, is, is certainly on a relationship perspective to do that. I would suggest that even on an asset perspective, we want the flexibility and the intent to think longer term. That doesn't mean that we will hold every asset forever. I still think there are times in life when you are fortunate enough to be overpaid for something and you know, it's just the right investment decision to sell. It is time. There is also There are also some times when it makes sense actually to mitigate losses and to sell, uh, you know, to avoid future losses. So we are not wedded to a forever hold strategy, but we certainly want the flexibility to be able to think about much longer hold. And that's certainly something we've, we've structured around. But unlike a firm like Carlisle, which has a closed-end fund structure such that they have maybe a seven, eight, 10-year fund term, that they wind it up and then they wind it down. They un- they sell the assets typically to close out that fund. That's at least the initial purpose. Sometimes those funds lag beyond the, the expiration date. I, I'm guessing, and tell me, correct me if I'm wrong, your fund, if you just I think you just formed a $200 million raise or something like roughly. $240 million. Yeah. So is that have a finite life to it or does it have kind of an open-ended structure in it? Sure. Well, okay. I, I, without commenting specifically on any one particular private equity firm, I think the industry as a whole has, in general, done what you said, which is create a series of closed-end fund structures. Obviously, there's been some innovation in the space, and some people now also have you know core funds or open-ended funds. There, there are quite a lot of different structures. Our fund, on the one hand, is a closed-end structure. On the other hand, does have a couple of differences. First, all of the investors are families or individuals. That is that is very different from an institutional fund. And it does, we believe, create some more philosophical 
and tax alignment. But two, we do have a provision in our fund that we call the extended hold option. And that option gives us the ability under certain circumstances to actually hold individual properties for much longer than a traditional fund life, obviously with the consent of our investors. Without getting into some of the details of it, I would say that we believe at least that that is an option that in general does not exist with the larger institutional fund managers. And it is an option that in general does not exist with Joey the syndicator or some other one-off shop. And so we are trying to innovate to the extent we can in, in finding a way for family investors to be able to hold on to their winners and continue compounding if, if they believe it's appropriate for them. So let's pivot now to property types a little bit and kind of what you're looking at at the horizon today and thought thinking. Obviously, the office market you're most familiar with, because that's the fundamental basis of your career, is struggling right now. It, so. it is. I, I would say that that is certainly the history, although like many, I have pivoted a while ago. <laughs> so our, our first fund is about 90% invested in multifamily and industrial. So, but, but, but yeah, office is clearly struggling. And, 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 and sadly, I believe that is likely to continue for quite some time. And, and there are ramifications, not just to you know those in the industry who happen to own a lot of office properties or those in the finance world who have been lending against those properties, but I think also for cities as well. And so I think, I think we, we do as a society need to try and figure out a better way. So you, you said industrial and multifamily. Are you considering more placemaking, kind of the JBG philosophy of kind of synergy of place and doing multi, multi-uses to fit that place? Is that kind of the philosophy that you're looking at for investment or is it a little more specific than that? So I, I would say fundamentally, we are, we are value investors. So it's actually a little bit more broad. We really care about our entry basis, how that compares to replacement cost. We'd like to invest in markets that have strong fundamentals, which in general, real estate only has three levers for demand, but it's population growth, job growth, and wage growth. So fortunately, those have been relatively strong, although different in different geographies. And then, and then that's the demand side. The supply side is is different. That's just how many buildings are you know already exist or are in the pipeline. And you know, I, actually, in many multifamily markets and industrial markets, the supply and demand fundamentals are actually quite strong. There's currently some turmoil, as we all know, in the financing financing system. You know, banks, interest rates, and as a result, we actually anticipate that supply is likely to decline or certainly not increase very much. And so, so I think the fundamentals in those two sectors happen to be quite strong. That that didn't really answer your question about placemaking. We we're we're thrilled with placemaking if it makes sense, but I think we care more about basis and returns than we do about the you know how an asset looks. I guess. Okay. So. I understand that. So do you see any unusual values coming out of this market right now? I mean, it, it, we, I look at retail has gone through a tremendous evolution. Office is now going through a tremendous evolution. The residential market, even because of people staying more in their homes to work, that changes the, the dynamics of, of a market. I recently took my group to a Trishman Spire developed apartment building in the district. And this is, I think, their first one in this market. And I've never seen an amenity package like that. Any any other any other residential property I've ever seen. Yeah, there's a real amenity race these days. It's it's great to be a resident. Fantastic to be a renter these days, I guess. But what was interesting is they're giving concessions. The market's oversaturated with units right now. Concession packages are pretty significant, and they're way below their pro forma. And I'm not sure they can ever they can get there within 
you know, again, your supply issue will eventually allow that to happen. So how are you addressing those kinds of issues where everyone's, oh, yeah, it's this bird mentality to, to the location? And, and, and well, I would say I, I can't comment on that, on that specific property. I don't, I don't know. But I, I would say the statistics around supply and demand are actually quite public now. And it is not a surprise that Washington, D.C. has had quite a bit of supply over the past really several decades, but in particular, the you know, past five or six years, certain submarkets more than others. It's also not a surprise that post-COVID and with the you know concentration of, of office jobs in DC's core, that, that there's actually less demand. That is not the case for all markets. Most of our investing so far in the fund has really been in what is affectionately called the smile. So that's the, the Southeast and Southwest in the United States, where there has been more growth. While, and while supply in certain of those markets has been increasing, there's a huge mismatch and actually quite a lot more supply could be added before causing problems. So we're not seeing those issues yet in our portfolio. They're possible, I'm not, you know, but, but we are not yet seeing those. Um, I think that the, you know, the question on how to address the current environment is obviously a difficult one. The entire industry is wrestling with that. So I'm not sure I'll have any you know, clearer crystal ball than, than the next guy. But one of the things that we've been doing is focusing on investment structure to try and generate either downside protection or asymmetric upside, or in rare cases, both. And so what do I mean? Well, we have invested not just in you know buying buildings. We'll do that, obviously. We, you know, we're a real estate fund. Of course, we'll buy a building. But we also will provide real estate credit. We call it participating preferred equity. And so why preferred equity? We have family investors. And so providing preferred equity gives the same downside protection of a traditional credit investment. We're not investing to 100% of value. We'll invest you know, lower than that. And therefore, we have a cushion of protection. But when with common, sorry, with, with the ability to you know, jump in and take over if needed, although that's not our goal, our goal is to be paid off, but structured as equity so that unlike a credit investment, which generates ordinary income from a tax perspective, we try and generate instead deferred capital gains. We're also often able to negotiate for minimum multiples on our investment and are often frequently able to negotiate for participation above that minimum multiple or that minimum return. So we, we happen to think that there's a real opportunity to do even more of that as current asset owners are facing a financing gap. In other words, the amount of financing they put on their properties over the past decade is generally not going to be supported by the same level of financing today, just because interest rates have, have risen a lot. And so the cost of financing has increased, the amount of supportable debt has decreased. We believe that a lot of owners, even in great sectors like multifamily and industrial, will be forced with a difficult decision. They can either put in more money themselves, they can sell at what might otherwise be an opportune time, an inopportune time for them, I guess, an opportune time for new buyers, or they can inject gap capital. And so we have a history of having done both, in other words, buying normal real estate or injecting gap capital, and we stand ready to do that. On the other side, there's another way, that, that's really a downside-focused strategy, I'd say. On the upside-focused strategy, we actually have a robust history of doing co-GP investing. And so in, in those sorts of models, what we would do is we would work with very talented, high-integrity sponsors or developers, help them expand their own balance sheet by injecting capital with them on the GP side of a property or multiple properties, and then bringing in institutional capital who is seeking those sorts of partners and willing to pay a promote for outperformance. And as a result, we have the ability, we believe over time to participate in, in those promotes and sometimes in fees in order to generate higher returns than traditional property level. That's great. 
So talk about the, the scale of type of quality properties. Are you, are you looking at only a trophy class A type assets? Are you looking at, you know, kind of the next tier down with opportunity there to create value? Where, where are you in that landscape as far as investing? Yeah, so I, I said this before, and we care more about basis than we do about how pretty a building is. It's, it's not about the, the, the picture. It's about the return generating potential and, yep. and the risk. At the moment, we are seeing more opportunities in what I call the sort of lower middle market size. And, and that has more to do with equity check size than with, you know, how, how again, the, the you know, trophy or class B. We've done quite a lot of class B. We've done a little bit of you know, trophy or brand new. So but, but, but most of what we've done has been in the size range of, let's say, 10 to $50 million equity checks, which is generally speaking larger than the you know, country club, uh, past the hat investing, smaller than some of the world's largest institutional investment manager funds. And so therefore, we believe that in general, we can try and find for, you know, for, for slightly higher returns or, or better investment opportunities. But if successful, the value of those properties may end up you know, increasing to the point where you can have an institutional exit from some of these larger groups. That's particularly true if one were to do a roll-up strategy of these smaller mm-hmm. assets. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we think that there's real return potential there. But, but what we look for are assets where you don't need to believe in that roll-up strategy in order to generate attractive returns. So you've done some GP investments with certain companies, and you kind of look at building a, a programmatic type structure such that they're going to grow organically and with your capital over for deal by deal. You set up kind of like a, a box that they try to fit into that they call you. <coughs> they're looking at a deal. How does that work? So they're looking at a new deal. They've underwritten it. They like it. They want to make an offer on it. Mm-hmm. Do they send it to you when they before they even make a letter of intent? Or at what stage do you take yeah. a look at that, uh, that relationship? So that, that's certainly our preference, especially with these programmatic relationships. Right. We frequently have, you know, depends on the market activity level, but sometimes weekly, bi-weekly pipeline calls. So we're hopeful that we actually learn what they're looking at prior to not just writing a letter of intent, but actually to prior to, you know, actually spending the time with diligence and underwrite. But but yes, at, at that point, we would then, you know, think about how to come up with a bid strategy if we're bidding or how to, or a negotiation strategy, a structure strategy. We do retain discretion on our own capital. So we, you know, if we don't like an investment, we will pass. And we have passed with actually with all of our programmatic partners, notwithstanding that we really trust and like their judgment. We, you know, every once in a while, we do see things differently, but we prefer to say yes to good investments, obviously. And when we when we do say yes, we have a choice frequently, which is to either invest just the small amount of GP capital that's required, or to in certain extremely high conviction opportunities to also upsize and, and, and actually write the entirety of the remaining equity check. So you do everything from a you know ninety ten at the GP level, or maybe even lower than that. I don't know. It depends. Many of the groups that we partner with actually want to put their own money in, which is, which is you know, we're, we're more than happy to, to accommodate that. We actually prefer it. So, so the, the percentages will change depending on the nature of the investment and the, and the group we're working with. Mm-hmm. And then you might do the whole, all the equity in essence. Instead well, of just- we'd, we'd be willing and we have in some cases done the remainder of the equity. Candidly, when, you know, in 2021, when our first fund was formed, in general, there, there's quite a lot of other capital that was also pretty interested. Some of that capital is quite aggressive. So in general, we thought it made more sense to partner with that capital. We have a little joke that we like to say is that if you can't beat them, 
promote off of them. Oh, that, that's what we were doing. It's it's a little unclear in this current environment whether that capital will still be as strong, and and it may depend on individual opportunities. But but we're we're open minded. I would say that we don't we don't have a very strong view going in as to whether we have to be all of the capital or would prefer to be some of the capital. We work with our joint venture partners to really figure out the right capital structure. We're very respectful of existing relationships that already exist. We want to be additive to the process. The last thing we'd ever want to be is an obstacle or a burden. So if, if I were to bring you a strategic partner. Please do. Yeah. <laughs> let's just say I did. What would be your lens to, to, that, per, to that company or that, that individual to co-invest with you? What would you want? What character traits are you looking for? What experience are you looking for from that, from that potential partner? Sure. Well, I think you hit on it with the word character. I would say there is nothing more important than integrity. That is the number one absolute top criteria. And it is so far above any secondary criteria that it cannot be you know, underlined enough. And so integrity matters most. We will not invest with someone that we believe has, 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 has character risk. Um, now, how to assess that is obviously a real question. We've been very fortunate both within our internal team and our external team, that we've been able to benefit from long, long, long-term, long-standing relationships. Just as, a, as, a, as one example, within our team of eight investment professionals here on the real estate side, four of us have come from JBG. So we've worked together. Actually, in one case, I worked with, with, with my partner, Ron, for a little bit more than 10 years and in various different roles. So, so we really value those long-term relationships. The same is true frequently of our joint venture partners, especially our programmatic ones, where we have known the individuals or the firms for, in some cases, well over a decade. So that, that's, that's, maybe that's cheating, but, but it, it really helps us get comfortable. If it were a new party, the likelihood would be that we would not say yes to the first deal. The, 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 the very high likelihood would be that there would be a, a dating process to get to know one another, to look at several investments together, to really make sure that there's a shared alignment of philosophy. And so that, that, is, that is really what we care about. Uh, I, will, I will say that we've been fortunate that as we've started to talk more about our own family-oriented investment philosophy, that, that people have started to come out of the woodwork. And, and, and what do I mean? So we have one example is a, there's a, there's a very, very talented New York City-based real estate operating company that also has development capabilities that was looking to buy an asset in the Inland Empire of California, arguably the country's strongest industrial market, and they they got they were they were able to create real value by being able to off market acquire a vacant newly developed building, but also had a tenant from within their own portfolio that was willing to sign a lease for the entirety of the building. So instant value, so to speak. They had previously had an experience with a very talented, very well known private equity shop where they had a successful outcome, and that private equity firm sort of hit the eject or sale button within 14 months. And this group said, well, gosh, you know, yeah, I got to promote. Then I paid my taxes and I no longer owned the building. I I wish I had a partner that could invest longer term. And they were talking with their lending relationship about this property in Southern California and what their desire was. And the lender, who's quite a large investment manager themselves, said, oh, you got to call declaration. That's exactly what they do. And so anyway, we, we got a call and it was someone we had a lot of common uh, knowledge of. And so we were able to diligence one another very quickly. And we did that first deal, which has now turned into, we believe, too early to say for sure, but we were very excited about the prospects of that, of that investment. And we then very quickly did a second investment with them. We've actually already sold that one. And we're, we're constantly working with them about potential new opportunities. And, and those sorts of relationships are really very fortunate because they, they, 
they fell into our lap in some ways because of the way we talk philosophically about our investing. But then once we do find alignment, we're able to replicate those relationships and really build a program. And that, and that's hopefully good for all of us. Well, that's cool. So relationships, it, 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 sometimes it's deal driven, I'm guessing. And other times it's the people. But, you know, if a deal comes around with just screaming, you're going you're gonna to take a hard look at it. But if the people that bring it to you, you're wondering about, you might say, well, we'll buy it, but we're not going to be with you guys, you know, maybe. So Yeah, so so David Swenson, who is the legendary head of the yeah. Yale Investment Office and, and one of the anchor investors of JBG, at least back when we were a private firm, has a, has a wonderful sentiment that he expresses in his book, but I always liked it better when he said it in person, which is that the best legal documents cannot protect you from a bad partner, right. but the best partner can protect you from the worst legal documents. And, and what I think he really meant was that people matter, is that, that having a trusted partner, someone who you believe has your best interests at heart and who will think things through ethically and honorably mm-hmm. is far more important than any one deal or any one legal structure. And so I think the, the point that you made is, is entirely valid. And, and, and you know, this is a people business still, you know, and, and we, we, we care about those relationships. We care about our reputation and the reputation of those we invest with. So you did say that you will buy properties. So how Correct. do you then, you take one of your existing relationships to plug them in as, a, as, a, as an operating partner for you, or are you operating assets yourselves? Uh, so we're open-minded. Everyone on our team, similar to me, uh, different experiences, obviously, everyone on our team has worked not just in an investing role across property types and across geographies. Everyone on our team also has deep operating experience. So I, I think that's unique. We have chosen not to build an in-house operating platform for fear that the desire to operating fees might lead us to invest in areas uh, you know, based on overhead as opposed to based on conviction. But we do have the capability to date when we have faced a situation like the one you're, you're bringing up. We have chosen to leverage our partner relationships and bring them in, but we are open-minded. And, and let's be honest, the world of real estate investment and operating managers over the past 30 years has grown quite a bit more sophisticated. And so there are plenty of great options for third-party fee managers, even if we were to oversee them with very active asset management. Mm-hmm. So the opportunity is you would keep 100% and you'd hire somebody as a, as a fee operator for you. Certainly could do that. And so you asset manage, I assume, your assets pretty carefully as a firm, right? Uh, we, we, we try our best. Uh, <laughs> no, nobody's perfect, but we've, we've been fortunate so far. We, right. we, we, we work hard at it. Yeah. It sounds like you said you want to be active, which is interesting. When you think of institutional investing, it's sometimes a passive. You rely on your partner very heavily. It's, is there kind of a, if you were to look at it from a percentage standpoint, these Look at yourself as kind of 50-50 with your partner, or you give them some, you know, reasonable decision-making latitude as far as uh, leasing and other things that they do. Well, I, obviously, the asset type matters. I mean, I'd say our partners in general are running the day-to-day, right? So the actual, uh, you know, uh, you know, janitorial or security, you know, bill pay, all that. They, they are they're running, although subject to approvals on budgets and on leasing guidelines and on you know individual leases at times and financing and all the other important mm-hmm. things. But but I would say that our investors are entrusting us not just to acquire. This is not a deployment strategy. This is an investment strategy. And so we feel very strongly that our investment teams should therefore be structured in a cradle-to-grave format. If we purchase an asset, we then manage an asset, and then we either dispose of or recapitalize or otherwise have to have to harvest the asset. 
but we are meant to do all of those things. We are not just meant to do one or the other. And that's, that's, that is the charge that our investors have entrusted us with. And we take that very, very seriously. Mm -hmm. Okay. So you have, you said David's funds kind of are the roots and you've raised a fund. How does that kind of assemble together? I mean, is it an 80-20 relationship as far as capital or can you talk about that at all? As um, far as how much cash is allocated to outside investors and to his? Well, I, obviously our, our, our business is in evolution, I guess, like all businesses. And so in the beginning stage, we had we started off investing just our own personal capital and David's family office capital. We then emerged from that to bringing in outside partners, started off on a deal by deal basis as we found an individual opportunity that we thought was you know large enough or interesting enough that we started to bring in other partners. David has always had a desire to partner with other families. And so we started doing that. We then realized that that's actually quite inefficient. It's it's difficult to negotiate from strength, negotiate the best terms or price, and it's also difficult to accommodate every investor and in the size that they want. You, you find it's a jigsaw puzzle at the end. And so we were disappointing people who wanted larger allocations sometimes. And so we decided that the best way to eliminate that inefficiency is to try and create a small committed vehicle. And I say small on purpose. Well, we, we do not have the desire to be one of the world's largest asset managers. David's already invested with one of them and they do quite a good job. We are we have a desire to be a smaller family-oriented firm, large enough that we can negotiate from strength, large enough that we do have a network of investors that is able to benefit one another, but small enough that we can remain nimble, that we do not face pressure to deploy capital, that we can instead focus on just those investments where we truly have conviction. So if I brought a deal to you, what, Please would, do. <laughs> what, would, what would be the, you know, today, if you had a perfect bullseye, what would that deal be today? Right now, if I, if I shot an arrow and hit sure. that right in the center, what, what would that look like, that property? That well, the, you know, the, the perfect bullseye is, almost never works, right? But I, but I would say, I would say that today, to the extent that we could find an investment in a location that we believe is likely to be, you know, you know a great location for the long term with strong supply demand dynamics, has a mix of current income, current cash flow yield with the ability to obviously, you know, take the depreciation and hold, but also a likelihood to over time have quite a bit of upside on rental growth, either naturally as leases expire and the market improves or somewhat more you know, aggressively with a redevelopment or, or development or restructuring opportunity. And then has the ability to not just experience cash flow and appreciation, but to do it over the long period, a long period of time. That would be our ideal. I will acknowledge that while on the one hand, interest rates have meant that pricing for assets has generally fallen, therefore theoretically giving rise to that circumstance, uh, the fact that interest rates have risen also means it is less likely to generate a significant amount of cash flow after payment of debt service. Mm -hmm. And so that bullseye as of right now is not, you know, is not easy to uncover. We are nonetheless hopeful that with our team and our you know, relationships that we will over time be able to find at least a few of them. And we, again, back to the point on small fund, we don't need to find 10 of them a month, <laughs> right? We could, if we find just a couple every fund cycle, we should do fine. And, that, and that's really our hope is to invest our own capital in that manner. What's the philosophy about leverage? I mean, how much do you want? How much you, you know, would you go down as low as 50-50? 
on a deal if it, oh, sure. if it made sense, or sure. even, we're, well, we're, even less than that. Even. Yeah, I mean, I mean, certain assets, right? Land, as an example, right, almost should never be leveraged. You know, in, in development assets, uh, we are currently about to construct two development deals. They happen to sit within opportunity zones, so there, there are certain tax advantages to starting off lower leverage. But candidly, we're also being forced into lower leverage by the market. We're okay with that because the the deals we believe perform, and we believe that that it, there are certain again tax advantages to being and risk advantages to being lower leveraged in the, in the beginning. And so we are open to that. Our philosophy with leverage is similar to our overall investment philosophy, which is to say, we should be flexible. There are certain assets that have inherently higher operating leverage and therefore should have less financial leverage. By the way, the financial leverage is also less attractive generally in those assets because it's more expensive and the terms are more onerous. An asset that is inherently less risky often also produces you know, more attractive debt leverage. And so we think about that, but we also think about the risks. The risks, in my view, are higher than, or, or are more diverse than just the cost of debt or the leverage level. I think it all, you know, term is really important. So having, for example, a 35-year HUD loan with low long-term fixed interest rates, and by the way, prepayment flexibility that, you right. know, you know, that has less risk even at an 80% leverage level, mm-hmm. in my view than a 65% loan that has, uh, you know, two years remaining on its term. And so I, I do think we have to think about all of those risks really holistically. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned development. So you are willing to go, you know, early on in, on a development situation. Is it What scale of development deals would you do? I mean, would you do a $100 million deal, ground up development deal if it, if it made sense? In fact, that happens to be around the size of the one we're working on right now. So we are willing to do those to be... Candid, I don't think this is very unique to us, but I think the, the world in general is taking a new look at development math. It is much harder to make development math work with today's cost pressures on the construction side right. and higher interest rates and higher, we think, appropriately higher cost of capital. So would you make a land bet with a, with a basically value creation upon sale of dirt, or would you only do something where it continues all the way to completion? Or would you consider, as you mentioned flexibility, you know, if you've been in the development business, you know that you create maybe 75% of the value of raw dirt to the point of, of total approval. You can sometimes take, and some people I know actually make money just turning dirt and never, never build. So yeah. Is that, is that a strategy you've ever thought about doing or considered? Look, we, we, we do that as part of certain strategies. Again, you know, no, no, nothing's off the table. I'd say the, the bar for doing one of those at this particular moment is extraordinarily high. Um, there's, you know, in addition to the normal development and governmental risks, I think it's, it's extremely unclear how when one flows through all of the construction cost increases, and you know what the state is of the economy at the time that one finishes a, a design and or entitlement. It's very hard to then figure out also what will be the appropriate cost of capital. So I, I would say at the moment we're not actively seeking those investments. So, but you'd be flexible enough to do it if it's if it's appropriate. Look, okay, it, yeah, we're we're not ruling anything out. We're, we're just, but we we do have a cautious lens at the moment. Mm-hmm. So, what you have is not like a mutual fund in stocks that you absolutely have to do this particular aspect. You have this broader band of things that you can do, which is, I think is great for a fund of the scale that you have to be able to do wholly different things. Because as I saw, you know, on your website, you have, I'm going to go through these, 
You have an LP, you have LP investments, you have direct investments, you have preferred equity, you have programmatic equity, you have co-GP, and you have opportunity zone money. So it's that's a lot of different buckets that you're investing in. It's interesting. Yeah, it, look, it all comes back to flexibility. We, you know, we 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 really believe that family-oriented investors and, and perhaps all investors have the ability to be flexible with their capital and should value that flexibility and should utilize it appropriately. That that by the way, we if we believe that the circumstances warrant it and we believe that the opportunity set is big enough, we have no problem doing all of our investing in any one of those categories. Uh, it just so happens that over the past, I guess, year and a half or so since we you know, started with, you know, since we started Fund One, we happen to be approximately a third, a third, a third in each of, you know, normal joint venture investing, you know, plus some preferred equity investing and also a third in co-GP investing. Outside of the fund is where we do opportunity zones. But we use the same process, the same thought, you know, you know thing, which is really that we only make an opportunity zone investment if we believe that the underlying property dynamics are, you know, warrant an investment. We just structure them outside of the fund to give our investors the ability to take advantage of the tax benefits. And so in order to do that, we need to structure it outside of a fund vehicle. And that's why we've done it. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about your company a little bit, how you built your firm and what your thought process was when you, when you started up as far as hiring and, and all that. What are you looking for in people? Well, I think it really comes down to the same things we've talked about in partners. I mean, the, the number one most important you know, criteria is integrity. That, that, that matters more than everything else you know, by, by a huge factor. But we also want talent. We want drive. And, and I think because of the firm that we tried to create, we ideally want people who have the ability not just to invest, but also to operate. I think it gives people a better view as to the opportunities and the risks associated with real estate investing. Hopefully, we can avoid some of those risks or mitigate them through you know, different operating measures. Hopefully, we can sort of capture more upside. But, but that's been really the philosophy is how to you know, create a team with high integrity, high levels of talent, high drive for excellence if we can, and, 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 and with this flexibility. Once you hire, though, you then have to like, how do you build the culture? Right? And that, that's really important as well. And, and it's particularly important with a new firm, with a small firm, by the way, a small firm where... We've been thinking about real estate, but our firm also invests in private companies as well. And we do it really through multiple offices. So we have a New York headquarters. You and I are sitting in our you know, Washington, D.C. area office. And we do have a couple of people in, in, in other offices in other cities. And so we've you know, we really thought a lot about that. In some ways, perhaps the virtual world has made it a little easier because people have gotten more comfortable with, you know, with Zooms. And so we have internal investment committee meetings, full firm, at least twice a week. We acknowledge that's too frequent to actually make meaningful investment decisions twice a week. We, we don't do that, but it's really been important in helping us build a culture of trust and of sharing information and of trying to you know, question the merits of individual investments as opposed to you know, attacking an individual person. It's much harder to do that when we build relationships. So it's been really important to us. And then I would say that notwithstanding our virtual meetings or our comfort with them, we have been back in the office five days a week since very early 2020, and we think it's been essential to building a firm culture. We recommend more people do it, but but, we're, but for us, it, it certainly works. Mm-hmm. So talk about, uh, obviously, the big friend these days is ESG, environmental social governance. How have you integrated that into, into your firm? Obviously, there's sensitivities on all those fronts. So how, how do you see that tied? Yeah, so we're, we're honestly still looking at it. So we, we've committed to coming up with a policy a statement around, around ESG principles. And, and I think, as you pointed out, 
there is some controversy as how people define ESG. I think in many ways, the, the biggest controversy is around the environmental side of investing. I think, I think with regard to governance and, and you know, even certain social matters, it's clear that people value integrity and principles and you know, following laws and you know, anti-money laundering laws or working you know, with people who aren't felons and all that. And so th- those are sort of the easier things to agree to. I think there is some controversy as to how best to ensure that the investments we make are appropriately serving the environment. And obviously for new development deals, we think about that frequently. You know, we have a project in Boston where we look at Passive House. We have projects here in the DC region where we have been you know, changing out historic old you know, central plant units in order to try and create individualized, in-unit, highly efficient you know, electrical you know, units for, for, for HVAC, switching to low flow toilets, that, all that sort of stuff. And so, but, but how to do it programmatically as a joint venture investor who sometimes does you know, credit-like investments, sometimes does GP investments, you know, I think we, we're still trying to come up with the right answer there. Is there a lens for that in your investment committee? So for instance, you have, you know, if, unless certain people are doing certain standards of environmental aspects, you're not going to invest in that. In that we're still we're still thinking through the right the right approach. To be honest, we 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 have not come up with with hard and fast rules. But we're still thinking through the right process. Mm-hmm. And then in hiring, um, from a social standpoint, are you looking at those through that lens also as far as bringing on people? We would love to. We we you know we like many others in the industry have a stated goal of improving diversity, and that could be adding more women to the team, it could be adding more minorities to the team, and we've been looking for that. I, I think in all cases we want to ensure that the people we do add to our team are of highest quality. There's nothing more important again than integrity and talent. Those are the the primary things that we focus on. But absolutely, we like many others would love to find ways to add diversity to our team. So let me shift now to personal. Sure. What are your life priorities among family, work, and giving back? I think you hit on them. <laughs> Those, probably in that in that order, to be honest. Family first, I'd say. Well, what I'm about to say isn't terribly unique, but you pointed out at the beginning of this discussion that my my mother recently passed away, and I think that is an, a moment in one's life when you really think through. The needs of your family, not just my parents who have given me a, a ton, but also my children, my wife, my, my sister, you know, also lives in this neighborhood or in, in DC area. And actually, so does my wife's brother. So we were really fortunate that notwithstanding that we, we all grew up in different places, we're, we're here now as our generation. That means our kids are all here as well. And so we're very lucky there. And so, yeah, we're, we're focused on family and we're probably refocusing on family now. Work is, is a priority for a number of reasons. One, I love it. I think this is just the most fun I could ever have, you know, tap dancing to work as, as Warren Buffett says. But I also feel a tremendous responsibility, not just to provide for my family, but I, I, I'm now entrusted as a fiduciary for other people's money. And that is a, that is a heavy burden and it's one I take very, very seriously. And it means that I, I, I cannot let up on the work front. It's important, not just to me, but also to my investors and, and take that seriously. I think the whole team does. So, so it's important. You know, giving back, you know, we, we touched on this, but I, I, you know, philanthropy has been important to me and to my family growing up. It's obviously important to David as well and to many of our investors. But I would say there, there are two types of philanthropy. One is giving one's money. That's uh, kind of the easier. And the other is giving one's time. And, and so I think that's one where I, I, have, I have done, you know, but, but I could do more. And, and, and clearly over time. And, and you know, I, I intend to do that. In some ways, though, that goes hand in hand with the, the focus on, on family and on work. Right? The, the more that I can incorporate philanthropy or giving back to my family life, 
I think that's just good values for my kids. And it's also a way to spend time together. So we, my wife and I do do that with sandwiches and you know, things like that. We, you know, when we, we intend within our work to do that, I think it's a good way of building culture. So we've done, you know, a day of giving or whatnot, but we also are planning, well, I guess the more financially successful, you know, we're able to be for ourselves and our investors, the more that either we and or our investors can give back both in time and in money. And so we're, we're, we're very focused on that. So David Rubenstein has set a, a pretty high bar on, on, on philanthropy. Yeah, no, he's, uh, he's giving back 100% of his wealth, which is, which is incredible. In some ways, you know, we, we, we joke, but don't joke, it's that we're in effect a socially responsible business, therefore, that to the extent that we can improve or increase, I should say, David Rubenstein's personal wealth, all of that goes to charity. That's something that's inspiring to me personally in ways that I, I, I struggle to express. But I think it's also been really inspiring to our team, to the people who choose to join Declaration, but also to the people who work with us. Well, that's, that's a great selling point for raising capital as well, to tell people that we are reinvesting our capital into, into, the, into the community. And his, his, his investments have been, you know, well stated. I mean, what he's done for the for the for Washington D.C. and and the, the mall and all the different things is amazing. He's an incredible philanthropist, and and by the way, a superhuman being. He's just a nice yes. guy, very high integrity, really funny. Many people, both you and others listening, will know that either because they know David or they've seen him in his various TV roles. His interview style is is one I emulate <laughs> greatly. I wish I could do it as well as he does. Don't we all? <laughs> <laughs> so much fun to watch. So, Todd, what were your biggest wins, losses, and most surprising events in your career? Okay, so career focus. So I guess we're, you know, we'll we'll leave focus out you know my my wedding or birth of my children and all that. Career. So, so I think the biggest win was was probably the feeling of you know standing on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange on the day that JBG went public and 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 I wasn't there alone obviously I was there with my partners and colleagues right. and and it felt like a real team win you know it may, it it might not look to others the same as uh, you know cutting down the net after the NCAA championships but right. it, but it, in some ways it felt that way and I was very grateful to have experienced that as a life event losses you asked next I think if I heard correctly so okay so so you know, I think I think the the global financial crisis would have created a series of losses for, for for really for everybody in in our business and many businesses. You know, at, at the time we I, I was at, at, at Tisch Inspire and we we you know we had invested in in some assets with Bear Stearns as our lender and equity partner, and you know that didn't work out well. You know, Bear had had trouble for people who don't know. Bear Stearns was a very large bank that no longer exists, and when they went under. We ended up, uh, I guess our equity partner became JP Morgan. That was fantastic, a big trade up in some ways, but our lender became the New York Federal Reserve Bank. And so that was quite difficult. We were able to come up with a structure after many, many, many hours of working on it that I think was, was well, was certainly good for our equity. We were able to recover equity, which was, which was fantastic, but it was, I think it was good for taxpayers as well. And, and so I, I felt proud of that. But boy, I don't ever want to live through that again. <laughs> that, was, that was tough. And then what, what was the last question? Was a surprise? surprising event in your career? The most surprising. Well, I, I don't know that it's an event. It's more of a, a sentiment that I have. And, and we touched on this. It's, you know, real estate historically has been a fantastic investment class for families. It's also per, proved to be a pretty good investment class for institutions. But what's happened over the past 30 years is that institutions have now created pressure on investment managers to focus themselves around, around investing in institutional equity, right? They, they've built firms, entire firms, some of which we've named, that have focused on investing in institutional capital. 
family investors, I think, have a different philosophy and certainly different tax and compounding preferences than many institutional investors. And so it seems so obvious, so logical that there would therefore be an emerging world that would focus on investing in real estate in the same way that these families have always wanted to invest. There's been a lot of increase in family wealth. There's been increase in the RIA community and the wealth of you know commingled family or individual wealth. And yet there do not appear to be very many firms investing in a private way, specifically targeting families. That's not true in private equity. In private equity, actually, the, you know, whether it's BDT, whether it's Pritzker's, whether it's you know, actually what we're trying to do at Declaration, there are groups who have specifically targeted family capital and tried to market themselves with a different philosophy towards investing family capital for the long term. And it seems to have been working. So the surprise is why haven't more firms been doing that in real estate? And I can't figure it out. I'm hoping that means it's a little bit of open field running and that we have an opportunity to truly differentiate. But but in all honesty, I'm surprised and I suspect it won't last for a long time. I suspect that others will enter into the space. Well, maybe there's some that are smaller than your your commitment that are doing it. I mean, I look at, you know, for instance, here in Washington, there are a lot of family-owned companies. I started my career in Washington with a BF Saul company. I mean, mm-hmm. talk about other than the Donahoe's, those are the two longest owning family office, you know, companies. Maybe it's a similar philosophy, but it's, I think in some ways it's different. Well, I, I didn't mean to imply that families had never invested in real estate. I right. mean, you, you pointed out some of the longest term and most successful families who invested in sure. our region, you know, New York, London, San same Francisco, thing. other, you know, same yeah. thing in, in all of these great cities. What, I, what I'm pointing out is that and by the way, families have owned companies for hundreds of years as well and, and have done fine. But, yeah. but the private equity industry has seemed to recognize that family capital can invest differently when it's formed together in unison with, an, with alignment. And again, BDT was quick to point that out. So, so the Pritzkers have done that. We're trying a declaration. What I'm, what I'm really surprised about is that in real estate, there have not been many groups who have commingled family capital specifically with that intent. And, that, and that, that, I think that'll change, but, but we're hoping if we can be to be at the forefront of that change. Interesting. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self today? <laughs> Get into multifamily earlier. Well, look, I, I think when I was you know, 22, not 25, I worked on Wall Street and I learned a lot, but I fundamentally didn't like it. And, and when I switched to invest in real estate, I've loved it. And so I think if I could do it all over, I think I would tell my 25-year-old self to follow your passion, to do what you love doing and to do it as early as you can. And I probably would have said, you know, bet on yourself, take a risk. So, you know, starting a firm is something that I've done. I, I started at 39 with Declaration. I guess, you know, David started at 37 with Carlisle. So maybe I'm in decent company, but I think it's been so rewarding and challenging, but so rewarding that I probably would have said, start it earlier. You know, don't, don't, don't fear. Just just, just started earlier, and but but I have no regrets about the way it's all played out. What so was it you didn't like about Wall Street? Just out of curiosity, it was one of what I said earlier. I, th- I think Wall Street, fundamentally, Wall Street investing is is quite removed from the actual assets that they invest in. It's, it's financial engineering, and it's hoping the management team does right. a good job. And so I, I think what we're doing is much closer to the investments. We are the management team, so mm-hmm. it makes it more interesting. So if you could post a statement on the Capital Beltway. <laughs> a, a, a billboard on the, on the Capitol Beltway for millions okay. to see. What would it say? For millions to see. This is like LA story for, for those old enough to get the reference, I guess. Well, I have a phrase that I use with my kids literally every day. And it's rule number one, have fun. And I think it's just a, it's a, it's a good way to lighten the mood, to bring levity. We're all very, very fortunate to be on this earth and we may as well enjoy it. And so I would say have fun. Great. 
Well, Todd, thank you very much for your time. It's been a good interview. I really appreciate it very much. No, thank you, John. Really appreciate what you're doing for not just for me by inviting me, but also for the broader community. So thank you for that. Thank you, sir. Take care. So we just listened to Todd Rich, the founder of Declaration Partners, co-founder, I should say. And of course, they that his fund was seeded by David Rubenstein, founder of Carlisle. And as I usually do, I bring, I'm bringing on my podcast guest, and it's back to my original standby guy, and that's Colin Madden is joining me back again. Colin, welcome. Thanks, John. Good to be back after a number of months, but I, I, I'm glad this is the one I came back to, to do the postscript on because I thought it was very interesting, thought his, his current platform and his position at that platform is one of one of the positions of all your guests that I kind of am most envious of. It seems like a very interesting, interesting job and hands-free and kind of more philosophically in line with how I would love to invest. Before we start, I, I also want to kind of echo his sentiment to you of, I think he was like super thankful that all you do in the ULI community and the mentorship community and outside of that, like the greater Washington community. And I think you don't get enough credit for it. And that's what he said. And, I'll echo those because I think what you're doing is great. I feel like you're Thank you. you're recording the verbal history of Washington, D.C., and I don't think anyone else really is. So I think all of your guests, you know, it, m- it might not be fully appreciated right now, but having, you know, hundreds of hours of verbal history of D.C. real estate is definitely like a huge asset, I think, for the entire D.C. real estate community and probably international community because of how, how big real estate is here. So heard that, heard him say thank that. You. I wanted to, to echo it because uh, thank you. It's probably not always, you know, fully appreciated, but anyways, <laughs> thank you. Yeah. I thought this was a great listen. I think his career track was, was pretty exciting. And again, I'm super envious of his platform right now. I think you and I obviously both are of the followers of Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. And I feel like this setup is much more in tune with how they invest. It's more mm-hmm. strike strike missions, basically. And I think he gets into that a little bit of, you know, the large private equity real estate giants right now. It's, you know, you raise the fund and deploy it in a pretty regular cadence. It's not, it's, it's more like levered beta investing and macro investing, but not so much of like a full-on conviction into a certain deal investing, which it sounds like declaration is more patient, doesn't have that LP pressure to deploy as fast as possible, doesn't have like the kind of the uh, the shareholder pressure to just raise massive oh. funds, fee on it and deploy it and raise the next fund, fee on it, deploy. It. So I think that it, it seems like they're they're more patient and have the ability to be more patient and then kind of do strike strike deals when the time is right. So that's something I am envious of. I think it's a, it's a cool setup. Uh, before I ramble on too much, did you? No, know I, I agree. He, they don't have to make deals. Mm-hmm. It's not, they're not forced to make deals when they, you know, the, the money's patient. It sits there. It is closed end, he said, but he said it, it has unique features to it that allows for them to extend it if they need to. And, and the, What's interesting is the way they're investing. It's not just one way. They're doing six mm-hmm. or seven different plat strategies of investing, not as much product type as the way they invest. So co-GP, they do that. 
They have mm-hmm. programmatic partnerships with investors. They have limited partnership investments, which is the big check typically on, on a transaction. The opportunity zone focus, because their investors are either individuals or family offices. They're looking for the tax benefits of tax advantaged investing as opposed to a pension fund strategy, which has no tax implications to it. Mm-hmm. So there's, you know, he's figuring out the best way to approach it and looking at it from a opportunistic lens, but not necessarily in the real estate per se. So he's saying, you know, I'm not going to buy a land and try and do land deals, which is opportunistic from the, on the real estate spectrum. I'd rather mm-hmm. be a, more opportunistic in where I strike as far as the investment positioning, which mm-hmm. I think is an interesting strategy today. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Do you think having, and he, he very much so stressed the flexibility component of their yes. platform? Yes. To play devil's advocate, do you think having too much flexibility, you know, kind of removes some of your edge because they're kind of looking too many places? Or do you think, I think he said that every year they only need to make like a few deals or a few runs, run at, runs at deals. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, so maybe, maybe they that. are looking everywhere, but because they're so yeah. patient and so selective, well, they're not getting spread too thin on strategy. The flexibility is in one spectrum, though, not in people. Mm-hmm. So when you think about the people, the constant is the quality people. Mm-hmm. So let's think creatively amongst the people they want to do business with. And that's where they're inflexible. Mm-hmm. So he's saying, you know, we have to have people of integrity, intelligence, and talent that we get to know and understand. And once we have that, then we'll look at just about anything, you know, mm-hmm. from a flexibility standpoint, structure based on the transaction, the situation we're looking at. So, you know, if it's an interesting opportunity where we can create value and we can see that, maybe we do it as a GP. Maybe mm-hmm. we do it as with all the money, depending on what the capital markets are telling us right now. Maybe we do a land play and hold it for a longer period of time until the market's right to start going vertical on it. I mean, it just this whole, you know, the variability and the flexibility is in some, in one spectrum, I guess is what I'm trying to say, not Mm-hmm. You know, everything. Yeah. Where you're just like throwing the dice at Vegas. No. Yeah. This is, you know, there is a there is a direction based on the people you're doing business with. I think mm-hmm. that's really what if I'm interpreting it right, I think that's what he's saying. Yeah. Yeah. They find the deal and can creatively be flexible to make it work as best for the for the investors. Right. And he said he's turned down from every partner that every strategic partner they've had, he's turned out, they've turned down deals because mm-hmm. they didn't see it quite the same way that the partner would. And then they'd go ahead and make a deal with somebody else and say, you know, we have conviction and you may not. So we're going to go ahead. Yeah. So they're not agreeing with everything that their partners have to say and bring them. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. They're very picky about what they're looking at. I thought yeah. it was interesting. Yeah, I agree. I, I did like his <clears throat> speaking of partners, and I'm going to butcher it, but he said something like good lawyers can protect against bad partners, but good partners can protect against bad lawyers. I don't think I've ever mm-hmm. heard that, but 
Uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was a pretty meaningful quote and totally agree with it that, you know, it's always good to have great lawyers, but it's, it's, it's always better to have good partners or great partners. So I thought that was well, a- look at the, look at the people that, that Todd's done business with and where he's been. Mm-hmm. So his, his grandfather was an entrepreneur. He was, his father was an entrepreneur. He went to work. He went to school at Princeton university. Okay. Mm-hmm. Then he, he he comes out and he goes to work for Tishman Spire, which is an entrepreneurial firm from the get-go and one of the largest developers in, in the country. Mm-hmm. But it's a family, family business, and he realizes he's not part of the family. So let's go find a culture similar to that mm-hmm. uh, where I have an opportunity to be a partner. He goes to JBG, and arguably JBG's among the smartest company in the region. Mm-hmm. You know, so he learns that. And so he's, I think the, the common theme is he's working with smart, you know, people that you can do business with that he can trust. Yeah. And it's kind of the basic theme from the get go uh, throughout his whole career. And that comes from, I think, from his parents' background too. And you think about it when he talks mm-hmm. about that in some detail. Yeah. And uh, his grandfather was an entrepreneur father was i'm not sure if his mother worked but it sounds like she at least had the mindset of an entrepreneur that's you know, right constant, constantly loving to learn and very curious and maybe well, they, they had the, the farthest, immig- farthest immigrant blog. yeah the like, immigrant jewish perspective which mm-hmm. uh, you know i they have they work very hard mm-hmm. they learn you know hebrew i mean think about you know every jewish person i've ever met just has this real intense feeling about their lo- their studies their work everything mm-hmm. it's just you know it's ingrained in them yeah and so the hard-working guy and so that's the culture that he's building at his company mm-hmm. i think it's intense mm-hmm. work and love of your work but having the flexibility and he said as he said in the in his billboard statement what was his billboard statement have have fun, fun. yeah right so it isn't all hard work and it isn't all, you know, nose to grindstone. Mm-hmm. Enjoy yourself. Have fun doing your work. As he said, he likes to, as Warren Buffett said, he likes to dance to the, he dances have to, dance to, to the work. office. Have <laughs> dance to the office, right? Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Seems like a very great place to, to work. So I wanted to, they kind of got into JBG going public and, um, right. That was his big and, win. And kind of how David Rubenstein doesn't always, doesn't want all his money with all he wants his family office. I think to have a differentiation of, you know, where he's putting his money and also the strategy. But I want to dig in a little bit of one component he discussed, which was like fee related earnings. And as when I worked at Carl, it must, I don't know, four years ago now, fee related earnings became like a, a very important concept for these large public private equity firms. So. Mm-hmm. Figured I'd I'd dig in a little bit on to explain to listeners what that means. And basically, if you look back at Carlisle's stock, probably six years ago, it's it's basically doubled in that time period. And if you actually go to the peak where you know all public companies kind of peaked in the end of 2021 era, I think it was up like four X from then. But and that's I think effectively because fee related earnings became such an important concept to management there. 
because if you compared Carlisle stock to Apollo KKR and Blackstone, we were trading, we were basically doing the same thing, had similar return performance, but the market priced those those firms better just because they had more. Uh, you could you could predict the fees better, and that's because they they had these massive these massive funds that they said, okay, we're gonna raise these funds, deploy them, raise them, deploy them, and then the market could predict the fees they were going to generate off of that. Carla, I would say was less focused on massive funds and more focused on like being able to deploy the money effectively. So I think when you boiled it down, Carla's funds probably had better returns and had better carry returns, but they were smaller. And I think there was a big shift at Carlisle to try to raise like a hundred, I think it was 150 billion, which They've been pretty successful at doing, and then the market saw that and is pricing it now more in line with Apollo KKR. So there is a shift to be more fund-driven, fee-related earnings-driven, and it shows in the in the stock performance because now the market can more accurately predict future revenue. More of an institutional investment approach, is right? What you're saying, yeah. So, and I, and I think that's what he was getting at is like. Declaration doesn't have that pressure to raise those funds and get that fee-related earnings. They can kind of keep in, and he specifically said it small. Like, and I think it was a two hundred million dollar fund, which is big, but compared to you know ten billion dollar funds at those behemoths, it is small. And I, I think that's just because they're it's able to invest two hundred million dollars. It's easier to invest two hundred million dollars compared to. 10 billion. I think that's what he was getting at. They're less concerned. Warren, the Warren Buffett earnings. has that problem. Yeah. Yeah. He says something similar. Like <laughs> he could, he could yes. get those, like you get those net 40% IRRs if he was only investing 10 million, but he's got, right. you know, 200 billion, probably more to deploy. Mm-hmm. So that was, yeah, my little rant there on to dig into the, what he meant. So by separating the strategy, what, you know, if you were looking at from an analytical standpoint, strategically, how do you see a declaration compared to the traditional private equity firms? I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to say. Like those, you know, the the big private equity firms are still killing it. They're still very, very good investors. They're probably they probably have less volatility in their returns because they are able. They're deploying, you know, ten billion dollars across two hundred assets, so you have less asset exposure. One bad deal won't kill a fund. Declaration, I'm speculating a little bit, but if you had a horrible deal, it might actually, you know, pretty significantly hurt the fund. So I think there's probably more risk in declarations approach, but you have a lot more upsize, upside compared to the more diversified kind of car laws. Not sure if that's specifically what you're getting at, but well, that. partially that, but also the selectivity of it. Uh, mm-hmm. the urgency of getting capital out the door. Right. right. Okay. A different, it's a different mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And the big, the big giants have to deploy the, that's right. You know, their investors are giving them the money. They're paying fees on it. They want you to deploy it and they want you to return it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I get the sense that declaration doesn't have as much pressure in that sense. Um, mm-hmm. And they can kind of hang around the hoop, wait for, almost wait for deals to come to them. And be very selective, like you said. So more of a patient approach, which I think you probably have more alpha in that type of scenario than just kind of deploying into a macro environment. But yeah. 
you know, if, if you're comparing firms to, let's say you're a sponsor and you're finding mm-hmm. you're trying to raise capital and you go to a lot of different firms. So, you know, if Carlisle approaches you and says, sure, we'd love to come in with you guys and invest. But you also have declaration to me, you know, if you were comparing the two from an analytical standpoint is if you had both both eager to invest with you as a sponsor, I would clearly want to go with a smaller, more targeted firm that would kind of be with you earlier on. Whereas mm-hmm. Carlisle is so big that you're not going to get that kind of perspective and you're not going to get the, the brain power of a firm of that magnitude to help you in, mm-hmm. in situations. I don't believe that's just my perception of it. Yeah. And I think. Probably you're right. I'm also speculating a little bit. I think it, it also comes down to team and brand. I think Declaration's a great brand and obviously as a fantastic anchor investor. Yes. It's kind of like you, you don't get fired for, well, I mean, it's, you probably would get fired for buying IBM today, but I think the saying used to be you don't get fired for buying IBM stock. Now I think the saying is you don't get fired for buying Apple stock, but so I think there might be a scenario like that where as a sponsor, you don't get fired for partnering with Carlisle, but if there was a smaller firm you partnered with instead of Carlisle that turned out to have a bad reputation and bad management, you might get fired. So I think you're right in the sense that declaration is a stellar reputation and you would want to have that hands-on team, but there might be other scenarios where you'd, you'd rather probably go with Carlisle well, just because just they have let the me, proven record. Yeah. Let, let me go to another angle that Todd talked about. So the most of the people there are not only investors, but they're also have operational experience. Mm-hmm. And he found that very important is hiring the people. Mm-hmm. So it's not just a passive investment firm. They want to take an active approach to the management of the asset, asset by asset. Yeah. Very few investment firms do that, at least on purpose. They may mm-hmm. have to do it because mm-hmm. they're in a situation where something's going wrong and it goes sideways, they have to take over and they have to bring on operational type people. Here, the intention right up front is we're going to operate, we're going to be involved in the operations and make decisions, help make decisions and have the right to, to step in earlier perhaps than other, other investors because we have the experience and we can take over if something doesn't seem to be going right or we have a, fee, we have a conviction that the operating yeah. partner needs help. Yeah, I thought that was interesting. I also thought it was interesting. He wanted to leave investment banking to get that experience, that hands-on experience. And that's right. I, I agree that asset management operation experience is is a huge component of like investing. Absolutely. Just just because when you're underwriting a deal in an Excel sheet, there's a line with a number in it that you might overlook and it let's take like deferred capital or something like that. You might just plug in something if you don't have the experience, but then if you have the operational experience, you're like, well, I've done, you know, 20 asset management deals in my life and that number has never been that. Like oh. that type of thing. Kind of, you have, a, yeah. you have that hands-on tangible experience of like what the reality check. actually mean. So I, I thought that was interesting that he, he wanted that experience to get improve his career, but also it sounds like he, he kind of hires his team around operational experience. I mean, look at your own situation, Colin. You came out of Carlisle. You were in, in the analytical side there, and you come into 
an operating company in Meridian. So mm-hmm. they're investors, but they're also operators. And they understand that you've got you to manage and operate and asset manage that property carefully mm-hmm. to make it work. And you get a sense that somebody sitting in the ivory tower is not going to know doing all the spreadsheets in the world. You're not <clears> going to know what's, what's really going to, where the rubber meets the road on operational decisions that have to be mm-hmm. made on, on the ground. You know, yeah. leasing and, and day-to-day operations of assets and capital, capital improvements, budgets, and things like that. You know, you could say, oh, we'll put all the, this money in, in, in amenities. Well, how the hell you know you, the amenities are going to make a difference in leasing the property or, or keeping the mm-hmm. NOI in a reasonable level or the costs in control until you yeah. see it on the ground? That's what differentiates real estate yeah. from other investments. It's, it's the on the ground activity that makes the, where you create the value. Yeah. I think that reminds me of, I think there's, I see it on Twitter a lot where a lot of people historically always say like real estate investing is like a passive, is passive income, stuff like that. No. But it's, it's like, it's, no. I, I, can't, I can't think of a single scenario where it hasn't been. <laughs> Very active. Yes. I think at, at a certain level, it's, it's passive for certain investors, but even yeah, at the if point you're the sponsor, for the property. Yeah. yeah. Even in the, in the land development business where mm-hmm. it's all you're doing there is you're creating value by doing zoning and, and all that. But just to get that done, yeah. you can't just sit back. You've got to be very proactive and convincing people that this is the value you're going to create by getting this property in a certain zoning, mm-hmm. a certain land use, the site has to be ready. All these things have to be physically ready mm-hmm. to, you know, capitalize on the value that you're creating there. Yeah. So you could have an, an entire career just in that little, I mean, not little, it's a huge space, but <laughs> well, that's what uh, I asked. Extre- him. I said, yeah, why extremely would, difficult. Why wouldn't you do this? He said, no, John, we're not quite, you know, we're not big enough yet to do that kind of thing. I don't, that's the sense I got. I mean, he's a nimble shop of eight people and they understand vertical real estate. I don't think they understand the land development business, nor do you want to get into the, that, that high a risk with, yeah. the, with, with family office capital. He wants current income. That's mm-hmm. important for family office investors. So you can't do that with land development. You know, maybe one deal. But you got to have a lot of cash to offset that. Similar yeah. to the REIT mindset, REITs have to have current income. You can't do ground up development too uh, too much in a REIT, otherwise you never mm-hmm. you won't have enough money to pay your stockholders dividends, which is the is the driving engine of REIT performance, right? Mm-hmm. So anyway, <clears throat> yeah, pivot a little and less said about Todd, but. It was it was kind of refreshing to to hear that David Rubenstein is as creative as I think he is. You know what I mean? Like the saying, like never meet your heroes. So it's good to hear that Todd holds him in such high esteem that maybe he is that great. You know what I mean? <laughs> well, David is such a broad. I mean, he's so much like Warren Buffett in some ways that it's incredible. He reads so much. He loves to read. He loves to research. He thinks about things. You know long-term strategically he's willing to get back and he's one of he was one of the initial pledge with warren on this mm-hmm. you know giving all their money back 
And I thought the question at the end, when I asked him about, you know, your priorities, he said, you know, family first and then work. And then of course, giving back. But he said at the end, which was interesting is that everything we're doing with this money, this investment is giving back because he get, you know, David gives back everything that he, he makes now. Mm-hmm. Everything goes yeah. 100% into, into philanthropy. So the operation of Declaration Partners itself, in essence, is, is giving back to the, to the community. But mm-hmm. it allows Todd to make, you know, partnership money. His employees do well. But then the, the ultimate profits and everything that they earn goes back into philanthropic effort. Mm-hmm. Which is, you know, I guess what a family office really wants to do long term is to give back. Yeah. Yeah. Capital retention, give back. I don't think you all quite got into it in your discussion, but curious if you talked to him before or after the interview. But do you know how they segregate the, because they, they still do like a private company acquisitions and stuff like that, more, more like the, the buyout model of private equity. And then they, he's obviously the real estate side. Do they work on the same team? Does, no, it's separate teams. Totally separate, separate teams. teams. Yeah. So the New York group of declaration partners only invests in private equity. Mm-hmm. And it's usually early, not as early stage. It's kind of middle stage, I think. I don't think they do venture there. Mm-hmm. So they're middle stage investing, but it's value add where they see ability to create value in the company and get involved a little bit on the management, mm-hmm. I believe. I haven't studied that piece as, as much. But it's, you know, probably very similar to the Carlisle model, but I think they probably go a little earlier on than Carlisle does in the private equity investing, is my Got sense it. of it, and not as big a scale. Yeah. The equity checks Todd talks about in real estate are 10 to 50 million, mm-hmm. which is kind of the middle market space. It's bigger than the, the past the hat country club type investing, mm-hmm. but it's not as big as the major funds and the big institutional investors, right? Typically. Yeah. So he feels that that's a good space to play in, and he feels that there's it's not as crowded. Mm-hmm. So he can plus the flexibility of their investment strategy, doing you know preferred equity. And he said it's interesting comparing that to mezzanine debt. He didn't want current income; they wanted to have income more equity where you could promote. Mm-hmm. He said that promote thing. He loves. He said. He goes out and decides, you know, if they're going to get LP capital or not. He said, well, if somebody outbids us, then yeah. we'll promote off of them. You know, right. that's our motto around here, he says, mm-hmm. which I think is great. But yeah, anyway. I think that was all the sections I wanted to hit. Is there anything I missed that you wanted to discuss? Or No, I just, I just really enjoyed talking to Todd because, you know, being 40-some years in the investment business to hear different approaches to things and Hearing how he's blending his thought process there to take a family office approach to the business. He just seems really excited about it and it'll be kind of fun to watch how they, mm-hmm. they invest their 240 million and how that plays out. So, and then what he does beyond that to create more value and to, to address the market the way it is. I mean, he's got an office building background, but he realizes that, as he said, you know, you asked the question, I said, so what would you tell your 25-year-old self? The first thing <laughs> yeah. he said was, get in the multifamily earlier. <laughs> yeah, which I feel like someone else has said on your podcast, but I 
Can't yes. remember who. Yeah. Nope. Do you think? Yeah, never mind. I won't go there. But uh, yeah, I thought this was another great one. Great. Well, thank you, Colin. Appreciate your input. And listeners, thank you for listening. I hope you got a lot out of this conversation. And we're going to have several more good ones coming up. So stay tuned for another couple weeks here. Thank you for listening.